0: Hey, yesterday, uh, some friends and I went to uh, an Iowa Wild home game, and it was a noon start time. We were going because uh, the friend that invited us, it was his birthday, and he loves the Wild and wanted us to come, so did that, my first home game this year. So it was a noon game, and uh, he had told us, my friend had, that, you know, there was a special that day, and it was before puck drop, keep in mind, it's at noon, before puck drop, there was a... Uh, two-for-one beers, right, before noon, before puck drop. So I picked up one of my friends, and we went, and we had to circle for parking and all that, because there was something else going on downtown as well. And so we didn't get in the arena until 1145. Now, I don't know what time they opened the doors, but I just know that there were some people who took full advantage of the two-for-one. These are hockey fans, right? So It was interesting, but there were a group of guys who had one of those, like, if you've ever been to a wild game, there's these sort of, like, on-ice level little VIP sections with tables that are set up. And you can have about a dozen people they are, like, high-top tables. And I think if you're in that VIP section, maybe there's some free food and some additional free beer. It sure seemed like it uh, based on what was going on down there. But these guys definitely took uh, full advantage of the two-for-one special prior to puck drop and then whatever else was going on. And so it was interesting. We were only a few rows up from them down at an angle, and it was interesting to just sort of watch. That was probably almost more interesting at some points than the game itself. But – They had a lot of empty beer cans, and with these empty beer cans, they decided they were going to embark on a mission. They had a project that they wanted, and if you've ever seen hockey games where people do this, they started a beer can pyramid up against one of the, you know, boards, the glass. I'm not really familiar with hockey terminology, so whatever that's called, right? I think it's the boards. And so, the glass, you know, it seems like it's plastic. I don't know, but it, it works. So plexiglass, flexible glass, something like that. So they started building this beer can pyramid. And now uh, my friend who was sitting next to me counted, he said there were 12 guys. And I was trying to figure out how many beers was that? Because <laughs> there's a lot of cans. So they really had this thing going. And it was, a, you could, people were watching it. They got it in the Jumbotron. It was a big deal. And at some point, I think it was between the, the second and the third period, the intermission the other team, the opposing team, was warming back up at that end of the ice, at that net, and just kind of circling and doing their thing, you know, after the Zamboni had gone by, and one of the opposing players, out of nowhere, just skates over casually up to that part and just checks it really hard, (laughs) and just knocks all the cans over. And I gotta say, it was amazing (laughs) to watch. Because they were just screaming at him. His number was 22. So they were just screaming and cussing at him. And he, we caught sight of him when he turned back around. And he was just laughing so hard. But it was really, really funny. All right? So here's these, this group of guys that had this mission, you know, as superficial and ridiculous as it was. It was to build this beer can pyramid. But they had this mission, and they had it at a point where it was at the apex, right? Was, I mean, only so much longer that, you know, they needed to hold on. And right at that sort of climactic point, this enemy comes, right? It's enemy from the other team, and he just completely destroys it. So, as Jordan said, uh, we are in a series still. Famous last words, focusing on the seven statements of Jesus from the cross. This will finish off next week on Palm Sunday, and then, obviously, we'll, we'll head into Easter. But this morning, um, we're going to talk about a text. Last week, we did as well. It was in the Gospel of John. So this week, we're going to talk about another text that John specifically talks about, and he gives us a little more detail than the other Gospels do about this text, and that's why we're going to use The Gospel of John this morning as our reference point. So let's go ahead and just look at this. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, when he, speaking of Jesus, had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. Very well known text. But it does present some questions for both the casual reader and maybe even for those of us that have been around church for a while and are familiar with the Easter story, with the crucifixion, the resurrection, all that goes into Holy Week and all those things. There's questions it presents. One of those questions is what was it that was finished? What was the it, when he says it is finished, what was the it? that Jesus was referring to. Was he just referring simply to his earthly life? Now that's a part of it because his earthly life, as he knew it, was definitely finished. So it was true on some level, but that is not in fact what he was speaking of when he said it is finished. What the it was that was finished was his mission. The reason that Jesus came in the first place so again, what was that mission then? So now we've established what the it was that he'd finished. It was his mission, but what was his mission exactly? What was this mission that was now finished? Why did, in fact, Jesus come? So we understand, right, that Jesus, yes, is God incarnate. The Word made flesh, and he came down, and he set up shop amongst us, and live amongst us, and lived this earthly life, and did a lot of things. And he went to the cross, and we know that sort of conceptually, and we can understand and identify much of that, but Why exactly did he come? What exactly did he come to do? So let's look at this in two parts this morning. We're going to go quick through these. The first part is how Jesus defined his mission. And the second part is how his apostles then understood it after his death and resurrection, when the church was birthed. And the apostles were disseminating information, and the teachings of Jesus, reflecting back on things he had said. How did they interpret it? And how, in light of their interpretation, did they expect the church to behave and live that out? So the first part, again, is Jesus's definition of his mission. Jesus himself said the following things about the reason he came, his commission, if you will, why he was anointed by the Spirit. And he came to do the following things, and I have these all on one slide. He says that he came to preach the gospel to the poor in Luke 4, and that's a quotation of Isaiah, that he came to preach the gospel to the poor. John ten ten, a verse we use a lot around here is that the enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I have come to bring life to the fullest. Some translations say to life abundant, right? A life overflowing, a life filled with good things. So to preach the gospel to the poor, to bring life to its fullest. John, the same author that's writing this gospel here, to destroy the works of the devil. and right? a very powerful statement that we've talked about before. He actually says the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that's obviously a big umbrella statement that encompasses a lot of things, but it still gives some shape and definition to the mission here. All right. Next, Jesus himself said to bring fire upon the earth. One point he says, did you think that I come to bring peace? I do not. I come to bring a sword. Another place he says, I have come to bring fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. How I wish it were already going. And then in John 18, Jesus says again that I have come, that I might testify to the truth. And of course, he famously says, I am the way and the truth. All right, so this is how Jesus himself saw his mission, his commission. But if we look at each of these things, and we should, and these are important things to know and to study and to look at, very important. But each of these really is just a singular aspect of Jesus's ultimate purpose. It's like Jordan said in communion, right? If there's a pie chart, each of these things certainly is a piece of that. But there's the whole pie, right? And here's what the whole pie is. Here's the truth of why Jesus came. Make no mistake about it, Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. He came so that we might have the ability to receive right relationship with God. He came to bridge the gap. He came to set things right. He came to make a way for us to be able to commune with God again when it had been broken off by the sin of adam and eve in the garden that fellowship had been broken jesus came to reestablish that now this may not be popular nowadays to hear talk about talking about sin Right? It's not really popular to talk about sin and how we need to be saved from our sins and that the nature of people fundamentally apart from Christ is not good. Right? We're told the complete and total opposite in our culture, Right? that everything within us is sort of naturally good, and if we just look down deep inside of ourselves and really extract like who we are, that's gonna add a lot of light and good things to the world, and it's just fundamentally wrong. It's just not true. It's just not, not true. Right? If that were true, and this is why things get so sideways, if that were true and you did believe that, then we have zero reason for Jesus. There's absolutely no need for Jesus in our life. Some people think, we've talked about this before, I'm not gonna go into this, but yeah, he has some good teachings and all that. Right, right, right. That's fine, but you can find that stuff elsewhere if you believe that you're fundamentally good and humans are fundamentally good and we don't need a savior. No, we need a savior because we're lost and we're lost in our sins. And on our own, we cannot come before a holy and righteous God. So we need Jesus. Jesus came to save us from our sins. We were born into sin. Consider these purpose statements recorded and or written by Jesus's apostles. And again, I have a slide with a bunch of them. Just saving you guys that take pictures and making it easier on you, you know? So the first one says, look, this is John the Baptist, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. This is how John the Baptist identifies Jesus. Succinct, right, short, who takes away the sin of the world. Next, this is Jesus when he tells, um, he's telling parables. For the son of man came to seek and to save that, or I'm sorry, what was lost. Next, for even the son of man did not come to beat served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many next they didn't all fit on one slide i guess christ jesus came into the world why to save should say sinners I, my bad to save sinners first timothy 1:15 and then paul goes on to say of whom i am the worst it's the next line in that statement christ jesus came into the world why does why paul says to save sinners And last, but you know that he, referring to Jesus, appeared. Why? So that he might take away our sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus, from at least the start of his public ministry, we don't know how much revelation he had before that because we just don't know, right? There's not much recorded. But we know that he understood this And he also understood and had a very clear view of how this had to be accomplished. He had a very clear view of what lay ahead of him. Speaking of the cross, so he knew that he came into the world to save us from our sins, to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the price right? The perfect sacrifice. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John says this, Jesus doesn't correct him, right? So Jesus knew this was why he came. This was his mission. And he knew how that mission was going to have to be fulfilled, how he was going to have to accomplish that. And it was the cross. And he regularly, excuse me, regularly used two metaphors, when he would speak about this, to communicate to his disciples and to those who would listen what he would endure. And they didn't get it, and I I understand why. These two metaphors were as follows. The first one, he would say to drink the cup, which means to partake fully of an event, or to be baptized, he would use those two, to drink the cup or to be baptized, which means to be immersed fully in an event, So some examples of things that he said, can you drink the cup I drink? Or He says to the disciples, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? So he's using both of these now in the same sentence and their response is, we absolutely can. He's like, no, trust me, you cannot, right? He makes it really clear. Next, he says, but I have a baptism to undergo, right? It's a metaphor and how distressed I am, until it's completed. How distressed I am. We Talked last week about the humanity of Jesus. This is another revelatory text along those lines. How distressed I am, until it's completed. Next, in the garden of Gethsemane, right? Father, if you are willing, what does he say? Take this cup from me. Take this cup, again the metaphor, yet not my will. Yours be done. And last, famously, when Peter cuts off uh, a servant of the high priest's ear, right? And let's be honest, he wasn't aiming for the dude's ear. He just wasn't good with a sword. He was a fisherman, he's really bad. But, and Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword away. In other words, stop. Shall I not do what? Drink the cup that the Father has given me. See the cross in all of its horror and all of its terror. And Jesus knew very well what the cross meant. This wasn't a one off punishment, this was a regularly scheduled event in the Roman Empire the crucifixion of criminals, enemies of the state, people who had misbehaved. He was very aware he probably would have walked by many times in his life people who had been crucified or were in the process of being crucified he was very aware of what he would have to endure it was not abstract or theoretical or like i can imagine it on some like level i've seen it in a movie you no know, he walked by it and witnessed it every day not i'm sorry not every day but all a lot very frequently very very frequently so he knew all of the horror and the terror that it presented, but he also understood the redemptive power of it. He knew this was the path forward. This was the thing he was going to have to do. He knew that this was what would fulfill his mission, to take away the sin of the world, to come and die for our sins. And it's clear that those things, the horror and yet the power, were in tension for Jesus during his last days, and that's why he says, I am distressed right? Until I can complete this. They hung heavily on him in his flesh in his last days. That's why we see him, right? As we talked about last week, in the garden. And he's asking the father repeatedly, if there's any way aside from the crucifixion, if there's any way aside from what I have to endure for me to fulfill my mission, because I want to fulfill my mission. If there's any way to do that other than this, could we make that happen? But then, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. His struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane was the climax, right? It's the point at which he surrendered ultimately to the Father's will. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's not a bad prayer to pray every morning when you wake up. Nevertheless, Father, whatever it is today, not my will today, but yours be done. This was the climactic point in this battle in this mission, in this thing, this project that Jesus had, this project to save and redeem all of humanity who he loved so deeply. We're told in a famous text where Jesus is initially tempted in the wilderness before the beginning of his public ministry, it says that he was tempted three times specifically. It says he actually was tempted more than that, but three specific examples of how the devil tempted him. But then it says after he resisted those temptations in the wilderness, it says that the devil left him until when? Anybody know? The devil left him until an opportune time. Strate- strategy, right? Strategery. Strategy. When would an opportune time be? Now we know Jesus was tempted throughout, right? His earthly life. We talked about those texts last week. But don't you think an opportune time to tempt Jesus? would be when he's right at the climactic point when he knows it's about to happen and he's actually asking, right, for it to be removed if possible. The enemy, and they depict this in many different movies about the life of Jesus, the Passion, right, does this and other other films as well, that the enemy comes to him. So he's had this mission, he's had this project and up until this point, He's lived 36-ish years, and he's been sinless, and he's been obedient, and he's done all the things that he was supposed to do. He's been stacking these cans, right? Now, this a really weird metaphor, but he's been the underdo- undergoing this project. He's been headed towards Jerusalem always, and at this point is when the enemy metaphorically skates over and wants to destroy it all in one fell swoop. But we know that Jesus resisted that temptation and the way he resisted was not my will, not what I want. I don't want this, but it's not about what I want. Father, it's about what you want. It's about what these people need. Now, he goes through with it and the cup has been emptied to the last drop. The baptism has been completed. It is finished. It is finished. Think about that passage for a moment. It is finished. It communicates one singular idea, completion, fulfillment, conclusion of something. John 19, 28 and 30. I actually put the Greek on the screen for you and I'm not even gonna mess with pronunciations, but later knowing that all was now completed, all caps, there's a Greek word. And so that scripture will be fulfilled another version of that. So completed, fulfilled, or you can tell they're the same root. Jesus said, I am thirsty, which we read last week. When he had received the drink, then he said, it is finished, back to, right? It's the same word that's translated completed just a little bit earlier. You notice that in the verse? With this, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. These three words derive from the same Greek word, telos, which means the end. Primarily a termination point. Then by extension, the end to which all things relate, the aim, the purpose. like Everything's been pointing this direction. Everything's been heading here, and now it is finished. This is done. No more of this. Everything that needed to be done has now been done. Completed, finished, accomplished in verses 28 through 30 is related to this verb, right? And it means to complete an activity or process. Bring to an end, finish, or complete something. With regards to time in the Greek, it means come to an end or be over. Everything that he came to do, he is saying is now done, it's finished, it's over. It's been taken care of. Not that you care about parsing Greek verbs or any of that, but it's interesting when you read about this, that in the Greek, because tense matters in the Greek, and it matters in English too, but in the Greek it matters even more. And this is in the perfect tense. And what that means is that it signifies a past action, the effect of which continues into the present. What that means is that it has been completed, it is finished, and it's still finished. It is complete, and it's still completed. It's the end in terms of time. No, nothing else needs to be done. There's a huge emphasis in the Greek on this word. With, it has to do with finality. Like It's hard to even fully understand in English, but it's just this massive, in, intense thing. It's final. So here's a way to explain it. In the last couple of centuries, scholars have found literally thousands of papyrus scraps, which is like the paper they used to write on an ancient Near East, with Greek writing on them. A lot of these things they found, thousands of these, are actually basically receipts. Like, you know, what you'd get at when you go to the mall and buy a certain thing, right? These are mundane commercial documents. But all over these, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, we find this word, they find this word, this exact word. And this is interesting, read read this. In poring over many of these receipts and contracts to better understand New Testament Greek, Bible scholars have observed that receipts are often introduced by this phrase, which is the perfect tense of talos, which we talked about, usually written in an abbreviated manner, indicating that the bill had been paid in full. Jesus says, it is finished, he uses this word, and I can't pronounce it, to talaste, He uses that word. You've probably seen this maybe on shirts, paid in full. You owe no more debt. Anything you owed has now been paid. It's been forgiven. There's no more need going forward. You're under no more contractual obligation to fulfill anything here. You are off the hook, scot-free. Your debt is paid nothing. You can cut up the card, so to speak, and throw it away if you want. You're done. It's a beautiful thing. The obligation has been completed. So it's interesting and we talked about, John gives us more detail about this statement. It is finished in Matthew and Mark, just before he breathes his last. Matthew and Mark just simply note when Jesus, before he breathes his last, they say that he cried out again in a loud voice. That's all they say. It's only John that tells us what he actually said. So we can put the two together. Matthew and Mark say that he cried out in a loud voice. John doesn't say that. He just says that he said it is finished. But you put the two together and what do you have? You have him crying out in a loud voice. It is finished. Does it make sense a little bit now why he would ask for a drink? Think about that. He asked for a drink if his throat was that part so that he could scream these last words. Right? It is finished. Here's the truth. We're getting to the end here. Those who go, those who are defeated go out with a whimper. But the victor announces his victory loudly and broadly. It is finished. And I know some of you are like, man, I just I'm thinking of brave heart right now. Don't. It's not even close to the same thing. William Wallace was not victorious. Nothing was finished, okay? The victory shout of Jesus echoed across that small, flat hilltop to the world beyond. It is finished. It's a cry of accomplishment, but it's also for the life of Jesus, an announcement of obedience fulfilled. It is finished, announces the full obedience of the one who, though being equal with God, we use this text a lot too, and rightfully so, Philippians 2, 7 through 11, Though being equal with God, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming what to death? Obedient to death. Not not joyful about it, obedient to it. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And I love this part that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ability to say it is finished to the Father's commission was the culmination of a life of obedience, humility, and suffering that now ushers in a new era. And through the obedience of one, we have been born again just like Hebrews tells us, through the sin of one, right? We were all born into sin, but now through the obedience, through the righteousness of one, we have been born again. Scripture tells us that he, being God, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We who have been born again, who are in Christ We are now commanded to live our lives with a singular end in mind. We're commanded to live our lives from the same place that not our will, but yours be done, Father. We're commanded to live in obedience with the end always in mind that we have a mission, we have a purpose, we have tasks to fulfill. We are commanded to live always fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the originator of our faith, that we might someday stand before him in heaven and hear those words that he's promised to speak to us if we endure to the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come now and share in the happiness. It's a great thing. The happiness, the joy of your master. How many of you wanna share for eternity in the joy of the Lord? And what an awesome promise. This is key. Here's this last truth. Maybe maybe there's one more. To be able to say it is finished as Jesus did. Our lives must be marked by obedience. Jesus is God, but in his earthly life, he willingly obeyed, humbled himself, became obedient to death on a cross. Paul put it this way. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live now by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the last truth of the day. Obedience is the opposite of independent action. Our culture is all about independence. Obedience is most often the opposite of independent action. It means living in obedience to God, not to ourselves. To say it is finished, we must be willing to suffer to achieve God's purposes for our lives. We continue in obedience, not just in the sunny summer days of our lives, but in the harsh, cold winters as well. We don't give up just because things are difficult. We look to Jesus and say we're willing to suffer whatever is necessary to complete the Father's plan for our lives. When our lives are over, we want to be able to say what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy when he knew he was nearing the end of his life, and he says this, the time of my departure has come. These are Paul's Some of Paul's famous last words, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Those are the things we wanna be able to say at the end of our lives, and just like Jesus, to say, It is finished. God, all you've had for me, all you've asked of me, I've done my best to be obedient to you. And now it is finished. And I'm excited to come and share in your happiness for all of eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you became sin for us, that we might trade our filthy rags for your righteousness. We know that you have created us to do good works. You've prepared them for us in advance. So we want to live lives of radical, radical obedience and radical humility. Father, we want it to be your will, not ours, that's done in our lives. We want it to be your kingdom that comes, not ours, in our lives. Help us to be kingdom bringers. Help us to be willing to bear up in obedience when it may result in difficulty for us. Let us use Jesus as an example. It's in,